Welcome to 45 Forward, the beginning of the rest of your life. Each week, host Ron Roel and his guests discuss topics of interest to many listeners in their 40s and beyond, including retirement, caring for aging parents, health, lifestyle, and more. It's time to think ahead to the next half of your life, and we'll help you plan it with ease. Now, here is Ron Roel. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of 45 Forward, where our mission is to help you, our listeners, from Los Angeles to Long Island, age successfully, making your second half of life even better than the first. When Hudson Cooper and I graduated high school and headed off to college some 50 years ago, Hudson was planning to major in biology, preparing for a career in medicine. He did major in biology, but quickly realized that medicine was not for him. So he did what a lot of suburban pre-professionals did. He went to law school, but the practice of law didn't suit him either. Instead, Hudson decided to embark on a totally different career path, taking a series of job challenges which for me would be the equivalent of hang gliding or maybe bungee jumping, things I would never do. In today's episode, Hudson recounts how he managed to redirect his career, first toward writing, with exactly one published article to his name, laminated in plastic. He talked his way into writing a book about baseball for young adults that went into 10 printings and led to another book about football and eventually 11 other books. Then another leap of courage and confidence as a stand-up comic in front of New York comedy club audiences which, as you probably know, can be famously uncharitable to aspiring comics. One night, as luck or serendipity would have it, an agent in the audience approached him with an offer for a role in a Matthew Broderick 1980, 1998 version of Godzilla, as long as he could start the next day, a Sunday. From there, he went on to a series of roles on TV shows like Law & Order, Madam Secretary, and Bull. And once again, in his latest chapter, he's returned to writing, landing a job as a weekly newspaper columnist with his distinctively wry view of contemporary American life and culture, everything about politics. To call Hudson's career a process in reinvention is putting it too simply. More accurately, it is a profile in career courage, a unique combination of resilience and risk-taking, finding ways to be in the right place at the right time, and being ready to leap when unexpected opportunities arise. So now, folks, it's time for me to introduce you to Hudson Cooper, one of my oldest friends who is always refreshingly new. Hudson, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ron. Hello, everybody. So, yes, we've been we've been uh on a 50-year run <laughs> on and off, but but we've always you know kept in touch one way or another. We were friends uh when television was all black and white, I think. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And certainly th- and certainly through part of our childhood. Yes. That that was a uh, I was the. I remember getting our first color TV. It was like, whoa, color. Um, and back then, most households had one TV. Right, right, and and no remote either. <laughs> we were the remote. <laughs> there we go. There we our go. Our parents would say, "Put on channel four, and while you're up there, adjust the antenna. <laughs> That's right. And while you're up there, get me a snack. <laughs> Right. So listen, there there are lots of interesting lessons along the way in the stories, but why don't we, you know, go back and, and you know, let's let's look at some of the initial, uh, you know, time in your career, um, you know, starting with, you know, your decision not to go to, to or you went to law school, but not to pursue that career and to in, instead, um, you know, look toward writing, which would stay with you and, and go back and forth through your whole time. Well, I, I, the reason why I left law, when I first started practicing, I was a criminal defense attorney with the Legal Aid Society in Manhattan. Okay. And I was very very friendly with the head of the society named James Vincy, 
who put me under his wing and had me, gave me a select cases. And one case he gave me was a inmate named Michael Corvello, who was misdiagnosed in Sing Sing with mm. lung cancer and was now uh, labeled as terminal cancer. And his sister wanted me to try to get him out of jail so he could at least die at home on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. So I went to Sing Sing and I sat down in the visitor's room with Michael, who was handcuffed to a hospital bed. And I had to be the one to tell him he was dying of cancer. He thought he just had a bad cold. Because I had to get him to sign the release. So to make a long story short, I came back to New York and I called up, I needed some publicity. So I called up Ramsey Clark, who was a former attorney general of the United States and asked him if he would help me with this case. And he rallied the troops and Clark, Wolf and Levine was his law firm. And we fought, we fought, we finally got Michael released from home on July 4th, back in the, must be 78, 79. And all he wanted to do was pass away at his sister's apartment on the Upper East Side. And that's what happened. Well, I was so negative about that experience. I said, this is not for me. Hmm. And I went to Vinci and I said, you know, I sat down with the sentencing judge. Michael had done his minimum sentence already and was eligible for parole. And I laid out to the judge, knowing that the judge's wife had passed away from cancer a year ago. Mm -hmm. I laid out to him. He's done his minimum. He's terminal. He has a few months to live. Why can't we let him die at home? And the judge leaned back in his chair in the chambers and said, everybody's terminal. I'm denying it. Well, all we were able to do was get a series of uh, 72-hour furloughs, three of them. And when the third one ran out, <laughs> here I am, a young attorney. I barricaded myself in jeans and a black T-shirt in his sister's apartment, not letting anybody in other than a few news people every now and then so Michael could die at home. And he died at home, and that was my determination that I was done being a lawyer. I didn't want to deal with such a frustrating, rigid system. I jumped on the subway to go back to my little apartment in the village, and there's a woman sitting across the subway seat from me looking at me, and she recognized me from one of the TV interviews I did during this crisis. Mm-hmm. And he said, she said to me, you're the lawyer, right? And I said, yes. She goes, you did a very nice thing for that man. And that was a highlight of my legal career. A month later, I was out of it, doing a bunch of odd jobs and moving on to what became the rest of my life. Right. Wow. And then that that early part of the rest of your life, you know, was picking up writing again, right? Exactly. Thanks to you and your brother. <laughs> you tell that story a bit. That's that's a funny story. Well, you and your brother started a magazine on Long Island called News Source. Right. I think you had one issue. And luckily for me, you picked me to write a piece about Formula V racing in Bridgehampton, New York. Uh, and I went out there for the weekend and spent a weekend with a guy who uh, was a cameraman for NBC, but on weekends he raced Formula Vs, which were modified Volkswagen. And I did an article and I wrote it for you guys. Luckily it got published because years later uh, I was dating a woman named Debbie who worked for a publisher called Cloverdale Press Mm -hmm. who called me up and said, listen, we have a problem. I said, what's that? She goes, someone just jumped out of a baseball book, broke a contract and we need they need a sports writer who's capable uh, of writing baseball. And nobody knows baseball like you. I said, well, what do I do? I have one published article. It was the clipping from News Source right. pressed against two plastic sheets. She goes, I'm going to set up an interview with you with Doubleday, who's going to publish this paperback book. 
I said, okay. So I took my little uh, clipping. I went up to Doubleday. They told me what the same story. Somebody backed out. They need a writer right away. Uh, They said, have you ever been published? I said, have I ever been published? Here it is. And I gave it to him, and he read it in front of me, and he went on the intercom and said, get a contract. And they signed me on the spot. My first book was called Secrets of the Super Athletes Baseball, which I got press passes to Yankee Stadium and Shea Stadium, interviewed hundreds of ball players and coaches and managers, wrote the book, never had written a book before, submitted it, and about it, they, they accepted it, and I wound up doing radio shows based on it. And about six months later, they called me up again. They said, uh, are you available for another book? I said, yes. Next thing I know, I had press passes to, to Giants and Jets and wrote Secrets of the Super Athletes Football and went on after that to write 10 other books. Wow, that's great. Well, our magazine didn't work, but and I learned a lot from it. I probably learned more about you know entrepreneurship from in, than any other experience I had. Um, and this was the, my, our success <laughs> your writing career. So <laughs> other than, I mean, of course, I went on to a writing career as well. But um, you know, I was so gratified when I learned this whole story. So it's, it's a great story. And I'm glad it. Uh, and then it led to other books as well. This is, you know, your. Yeah, I have, I have one great story that you're going to love because it deals with being in the right place at the right time and grabbing an opportunity. Uh, the Sunday Times used to have a huge help wanted section. Mm-hmm. And now out of work and not no, no contracts currently with a book. I started flipping through it to see if there was anything for me. And I see a little tiny ad that says sports writer wanted, former NFL player looking for a writer to write his biography. Mm-hmm. And with a uh, post office box at, in Mobile, Alabama. So I wrote th- this unknown player a letter telling him what I am, what I'm all about, that I wrote this, these books for, for young adults. And I said, I'm interested in, in working with you. And I gave him my phone number. He called me up about a week later. His name was Don Reese. He was a former number one draft pick for the Miami Dolphins um, and then went on to play for the New Orleans Saints when they were known as the Aints when they couldn't win a, oh, a game. Yeah. Wow. And he said, I, I have somebody in mind already, but why, uh, why should I pick you? I said, you played for the Dolphins? What years? And he told me. Now we're going to flash back to our high school years, Ron, because he said – I played uh, on the, the undefeated Super Bowl team in the year after. I said, I have a friend from high school that is an offensive guard for the Dolphins, Eddie Newman. There was a pause. He goes, I know Eddie Newman. He go, we started talking about Ed Newman. Don started opening up about playing defense for the Dolphins. Next thing he knows, it said, I'm flying up to New York. I want to meet with you. He flew up. He said, can you put me up? I had a studio apartment that was so small. If you put a roller in each hand, you could paint the whole place in three hours. I said, you could have my room. I'll stay with my girlfriend. I put him up in my studio apartment. We started talking. He says, I want you to do it. My agent had a contract uh, together. We wound up being on some sports radio shows. The whole premise of the book was he was the first player to blow the lid on drug abuse in the NFL Sports Illustrated did a cover story called I'm Not Worth a Damn, the story of Don Reese. And they did it in a sneaky way. They never told him he'd be a cover story. What they did instead was put him through a bunch of different rehab facilities privately, gave him envelopes of money so he'd keep his mouth shut until the book came out. He was at the Betty Ford Clinic, excuse me, when the magazine came out. 
and they called him into the Ford, the Betty Ford Clinic and said, we can't have you here anymore, even though you're not done with your treatment, because we can't have that type of notoriety in our system. Jeez, and he wow. went off. Anyway, the way we'd write the book is he would drive around Alabama and Louisiana with a microphone making cassette tapes that he would mail to me. And then I would have that transcribed and I wrote based on that. Well, the book was about a month away from the deadline. And I get a call from his wife that we have a problem. I said, what's that? He goes, Don's back on drugs. Oh, the whole man. premise was how he straightened his life out. Well, I went to Simon & Schuster and they wound up killing the book. Wow. But that was that was going to be a big book in my life. It was called Down the Line and was about how he put himself on the line to rehabilitate, rehabilitate himself and the expose of what happened with him in Sports Illustrated. Wow. Well, you know, these are bumps in the road, but you kept going. You know, it's these are things that happen sometimes. You, need, you know, that famous word resilience, you know, and that's what you have in, in, in a ton. So, um, you know, I notice I'm, I'm sure people sort of are picking up on your sense of humor, you know, uh, as we talk. Um, and that's that's something that I noticed when I was working with you as an editor back in high school. Um, and it never really, it sort of creeps into a lot of your work. But then tell us how this then became something more than just a good sense of humor and someone you, you like. Well, I always, I always had the ability to make people laugh on a, on a private level, not professional. Um, I'm, I'm not to brag, but I'm quick on my feet. Uh, I have a, a few different types of humor that people enjoy. So how I got into being a, a stand-up comic as a living and a sketch comedy group that I formed was um, I was friendly with Lenny Belzer, who's the actor Richard Belzer's brother. Mm -hmm. uh, and Lenny and I were bouncing around, maybe doing a radio show about the business and blah, blah, blah. So Richard was going to perform at Caroline's on a Friday night. And Lenny said, why don't you come with me? We'll get a table up front. And he told me what time to meet him. Well, I got there early. And Caroline's has a bar area before you go into the stage area. And I'm, I was surrounded by people I didn't know, but I was just riffing about stories and making people laugh. And there's a woman standing next to me. I didn't even look at her at first. She turned around. She goes, excuse me, what's your name? I said, I'm Hudson Cooper. Why? What's your name? She goes, I'm Caroline. I said, Caroline who? She goes, I'm Caroline Hirsch. I own this club. And I got to tell you, you're the funniest guy I never heard of. And when I heard that, it kind of validated that I had a sense of humor that people would appreciate. And I started doing stand-up at small clubs. I formed a, a sketch comedy group called Kick Booty that performed at stand-up New York numerous times. We used to sell out the Friday night shows, which was great. I did most of the writing. I performed. I directed it. We had some signature bits that people would call for every time. I used to do a lot of uh, spoofing of Andrew Dice, Andrew Dice Clay. Right, right. The first one we did was I was Andrew Dice Cartwright. <laughs> and we all we all came out with hobby horses, and I did a whole bit about, Pa, we have all this money. We have a big ranch. Where are the women? And I riffed on that, and that became a popular bit. Wow, wow. That's great. Um, yeah, so uh, we're going we're gonna to take a break shortly, uh, Hudson, but um, uh, I'm going to talk a bit more about then how this transitioned uh, again through another bit of readiness and serendipity, but ability to leap. Um, and so we'll, we'll talk about how this uh, uh, basically worked into your acting career. So folks, uh, we're going to take a short break now. 
Uh, when we come back, uh, we'll be talking much more with Hudson Cooper, the actor and writer. There's much more to come, so don't go anywhere. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input, too. Listen for Brave Hearts Radio, Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. Want to play the ponies and win? At Winning Ponies, we go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, and handicappers. The Winning Ponies Radio Show with John Inglehart, racing's regular guy, is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. Catch us live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Win prizes just for calling in. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Rowell or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back to 45 Forward, folks, where we're talking with Hudson Cooper about his constantly renewing and refreshing career as an actor and writer. Now, before we continue our conversation with Hudson, I just wanted to mention that you can find out more about him by going to my website, rowellresources.com, and clicking on the 45 Forward tab. And there you can also find the link to Hudson's actor reel on YouTube. So just go there and you click on it and you can see uh, several segments from his, a variety of his shows and, and from uh, stage, from screen and, uh, and TV shows. So uh, when we left, just before the break, uh, we were talking about uh, Hudson's um, uh, stand-up career. And uh, now this has another interesting uh, segue to his acting career. So why don't you tell us that story, Hudson? Well, this one totally came out of the blue. We finished performing one night at Stand Up New York on the Friday. And uh, there was a woman standing in front of the stage who called me over while we were putting all our props away because we what we did – as a sketch group, each each skit had different props that we used, and we were responsible for putting them away. Anyway, she called me over. She go, says, my name is Beata. I said, yes. She goes, I'm doing the casting for the movie Godzilla with Matthew Broderick. I said, okay. She goes, would you like to be in the movie? I said, what are you talking about? She goes, I can get you in the movie starting tomorrow. I can get you three Taft-Hartley waivers Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And you could join the union the next day and you'd be a member of the Screen Actors Guild. So I said, sure. <laughs> sure. So the next morning we, we had to meet at the Columbus Circle uh, to get on buses to be shuttled. All the act background actors had to be shuttled to Jersey where they had a military compound scene where Godzilla was going to be coming up the the, the, the Hudson River and we were going to battle the big Godzilla monster. So anyway, I get there at eight o'clock in the morning. I'd never been on a movie set before. Uh, everybody else had been there for a few days, so they had to put me through wardrobe, 
makeup, give me a phony gun, and all the because I was playing a Marine, hmm. one of the 400 Marines they had there. So uh, I get to the tent with little tiny light bulbs. It's very dark, and somebody hands me a piece of paper. And I'd never been on a set before. I said, what is this? They said, oh, it's a voucher. You have to fill it out in order to get paid. So I took it and found a seat, and I'm filling it out, my name, my address, blah, blah, blah. And it said basic wage. I said to the guy next to me, what's the basic wage? Well, this is back in 97, 98. Right. And they said 92. I think it's the movie business. I write 92 per hour. And I fill out the whole voucher and I put it away because you turn that in at the end of the night. Uh -huh. So we have a 10-hour day. I'm thinking to myself, well, I made over $900. I'll do this once or twice a week, maybe take a few acting lessons, see if this will pan out as a career. All of a sudden I hear, it's a wrap. Now, now I know what that means, but I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know if lunch was being served again. <laughs> Everybody started running and getting online. I got online. And I eventually got to the front of the line, and a production assistant, his name was Eric Yellen, who's now a director, takes my voucher and goes, what is this? And I mumble, well, I'm here for the Taft-Hartley wave. He goes, I, no, 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 I know about that. What is this under basic wage? And I looked down, I said, oh, it's, I asked the guy this morning, he said, 92 per hour. He looked at me with a, looked at me like I was nuts and said, that's 92 per day. I leaned back, I go, 92 per day? How the heck do you make a living in this business? And I chased that 92 per hour for the next 20 years. Wow. The third day I went to the union and I had my vouchers. You needed three waivers to get into the union. I got on the union and I did 30 more days on Godzilla. It was directed by Roland Emmerich, who had just had the success of Will Smith's Independence Day oh, with yeah. Jeff Goldblum, who we'll talk about later because okay. I had no, another experience with Jeff. So – uh, he had all the money to spend, Roland Emmerich. So it, it, it long days, smoke wet, made a lot of money, uh, and some scenes were hysterical. We had a nighttime scene at Union Square. They had phony tanks that so were made out of plexiglass that so you could literally move with your hand, but they had one real tank. Well, <sighs> at four in the morning, morning, the director, Roland Emmerich, said, I want to hear what it sounds like when the tank really goes off with a – with a, you know, I forget what they call it, a duds, but he wanted the noise. 4 a.m., cops weren't alerted, the neighbors weren't alerted. Suddenly you hear, boom, car alarms go off, lights are going on, all the surrounding residential buildings, cops are showing up. He didn't tell anybody he was actually going to blow it up. <laughs> and so then the next day, they instead of obviously they didn't have Godzilla, they had production assistants with bamboo poles holding tennis balls on the end to simulate Godzilla coming down Broadway towards Union Square. Wow. So we had rifles, and on action, we're supposed to be pointing rifles at Godzilla and firing. Well, when you're a kid and you play Army and you have a play rifle, when you start firing, you, you actually make the noise, bam, 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 bam. Right. At 400 guys going, bam, 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 bam. <laughs> and you hear, cut! Roland gets a, a megaphone and goes, what are you guys, out of your mind? <laughs> no no soldier goes, bam, 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 bam. <laughs> We're going to put muzzle flare CGI. We're going to put the sound in. Keep your mouth shut and just point the rifle. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and that was Godzilla. After, after I joined it, I stayed in the Union, still am, uh, since 97, 98. Right, right, right. 
So then, you know, for, from there, though, uh, th- then you, you got involved in TV. Yeah, I bounced around a little bit doing background bit players on different shows. Right. My big break came one night on a Sunday night when I get a phone call from a casting agent saying, are you available tomorrow? And I said, yes, what's up? He goes, well, we're casting a new detective show called Law and Order Criminal Intent, mm-hmm. which would be the third Law and Order show, Law and Order SVU. And then they were doing Criminal Intent with Vincent D'Onofrio and Kate Irby. Right. He said, are you available? One, we had a detective type bow out and I need somebody first thing in the morning. Wow. So I said, no problem. He goes, wear a suit and tie. Told me where to show up. I showed up. I met everybody. I stayed there for 10 seasons. I was the only background or principal actor to work every single episode of Law and Order Criminal Intent. Wow. Wow. You know, it's interesting, though, that that, you know, I, I think to the outside observer like me, you never think about, you know, the acting profession in terms of just this sense of readiness. As you've said before, you know, you just got to be there because it, it seems like there are times when, you know, in spite of all the planning, things happen and you got to be ready for that that break. Yeah, everything everything in my life is a matter of being it just you have to be ready. You have to be at the right place in the right time. And when that time comes, you have to produce. You have to be ready to produce. And it's it's that facet that has been a part of my life, also being willing to take chances. So I turned out to be an actor for a long time, writing on the side. But um And you never did take any uh, Acting lessons? Or? I took acting lessons uh, with, uh, I, I'm not going to mention his name, I, with an acting coach. Mm-hmm. Vincent, Vincent D'Onofrio, who became a friend of mine from Criminal Intent, told me that he sometimes uh, sits in on an acting class led by this gentleman, and he could get me in the class. And so I started doing the class. I realized it wasn't for me when the first piece that I had to memorize was a scene from Hamlet. I'm not a Shakespearean guy. I'm a detective type street guy. I'm not going to be doing Shakespeare, and it, di- it didn't work out. But Vincent was my mentor early on, um, and he's the one that got me my first audition to play a detective named Jeffries. Uh, I played Detective Jeffries on Law and Order: Criminal Intent. But how that happened was pretty funny mm-hmm. because I I was on a golf course years ago while during the second or third season. And I had an agent, and he called me up. He said, listen, Criminal Intent wants you to come down today to Chelsea Piers, where they filmed, to audition to play a cop. Now, I know if you play a cop on a TV show, you have one line, and you're never used again. You're established, <laughs> and they never see you again. Well, I had this, a steady gig doing background. I was making money. I said, tell him I'm not interested. He goes, what do you mean? I said, I, and I told him what I just told you. You do one line, and you disappear. He said, okay, I'll call you back. He calls me back. He goes, they just want you to come in. I said, okay. So I said to my buddy, who, I, who was also an actor, I said, you got to get me back to the city. city. We drove back to the city. I put on a suit and tie, and I'm waiting for my audition, and I'm kind of upset that this is what they're going to read me for. I don't want this part. Mm-hmm. And I walked in, and there was a producer, the director. Uh, I don't think Vincent was there. There was another another actor. And I sat down, and as I sat down, I said, before we start, I'm going to say something that nobody in this chair has ever said to you. They looked up at me. They're, what's that? I said, I don't want this part. I have no idea why you brought me in. This is not me. I've been a detective for three seasons on your show. I don't want to be a police officer. That's not me. They said, can you just do the line? So I do the line. 
I went home. About four hours later, my agent calls me up and goes, I don't know what you told them, but your new character name is Detective Jeffries. You're going to have a recurring role on Law & Order Criminal Intent. And that's how I started as a principal actor on that show. Wow. That's a great story. Yeah. So you got to, you got to know what you want and know what you, you know, again, that's, but that's, you know, a risk too. You turn them down and then it, but you had good reasons and they came back. So it was a risk though, but it paid off and maybe it couldn't, it maybe wouldn't have, but, but that's what you do. You take that. I think, I, I think I rocked their world a little bit and opened their eyes when I said, this is not the role I want. I don't right. even want this part because right. no one ever says that everybody's so hungry for a role. They'll do anything that's handed to them. Right. But that's not me. Right. Right. And so you, you went on to do a, a, other shows too, right? You did Madam Secretary and you did- I did Wolf. Madam Secretary for five seasons. What happened with that, after season one, uh, the producer director, who's a friend of mine now, Eric Stoltz, looked at the dailies after season one and said, wait a second, Tay Leone plays the Secretary of State. Why are we surrounding her but nothing but 25-year-old people? <laughs> It'd be people of a certain age that have been with her from day one. Uh, so they they needed five new people to be brought in, people a little bit older like myself. About 400 people submitted photographs and blah, blah, blah. Eric picked five of us, including me. And I started uh, season two, episode five, finished the five years as a State Department. And again, I had a change also because when the fifth year was up, uh, the Madam Secretary was going to be president of the United States. And the State Department scenes were done. So I figured I was finished on the show. Well, that summer I get a phone call that Eric picked six of us to be in the White House with her as a, when she's president. So I did the final season as, as a, uh, an aide to the president in the White House. Wow. <laughs> so that, that, uh, that, that show basically finished, right? But then but, – but then, and I figured I figured I was done with working with Eric Stoltz. Mm-hmm. And uh, last summer, during the, right before the pan, right during the start of the pandemic, uh, I get a phone, an email from him, saying, "Guess what? I'm now working on the show Bull as a director producer, and I'm picking some people to come with me for Madam Secretary. Would you be willing to work with strict COVID restrictions on Bull?" Uh-huh. And last season, I worked every episode with Bull during the pandemic. Wow, wow! Now, how did they do that? Was that what? What was that experience like? Well, we got tested. We were the first show to be filming in New York. We had tests three days a week. You had to have an outside test in order to get on the set. Then they had they had a testing service on set three days a week. Everything was social distancing. The scripts were written with every, that it was a pandemic. So everybody, including the stars, the judges, the court officers how to wear face masks, the uh, no more catered lunch. Catered lunch on TV and movie sets like like going to a wedding every day. Right, right. There was, there'd be so much food. They'd have to, by union rules, they'd have to have a meat dish, a fish dish, a chicken dish, four or five different types of salads and vegetables. They would have a dessert table like a Viennese table at a wedding. But because of the pandemic, we all had, got a menu the night before. We selected one dish, one vegetable, one dessert, mm-hmm. and was hand-delivered to where our, our holding area was in a sealed container. We all had separate desks. Nobody sat together six feet apart from everybody else, and it was very safe. You felt very – I felt safer on that set than I did taking the subway to get there. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. Wow. Wow. 
But yeah. I also did movies. I, I did a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. For example? I did uh, War, War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise. Okay. Before to, before Tom went nuts on Oprah's couch, <laughs> we filmed. We're in the we're in the scene where the uh, alien beasts come out of the ground in New Jersey. Well, we filmed that in the Ironbound district of New Jersey, um, and there was a Spielberg uh, directed it, and there was a break in the action, and Tom was standing next to me, and a plane happened to fly overhead, mm-hmm. and we had a 15 minute conversation, and I asked him, "You fly, don't you?" Well, he took off on flying and talking about Travolta's jet, and John Travolta was the safest pilot he was ever with. Wow. Uh, that was a crazy job also because we were running. Every shot was running away from these beasts. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I've done a lot of movies. I, I enjoy doing movies because it's ongoing and it's different. And I did uh, Secret Life of Walter Mitty with Ben Stiller when they recreated the 1950s, 60s Life magazine uh, office building with actual blow-ups of Life magazine. I played a photo uh, editor. And before we started filming, uh, uh, you know, Miller, he direct he directed it also. And he came, he made an announcement that we're going to, I'm going to be walking around. And uh, Ben said, I'll be walking around, no cameras, no microphones. I just want to see what the set looks like filled with people, huh. but but act like you act like you're really photo editors. So he's walking around with his hand under his chin, looking at everybody, and I'm looking at a photograph of an Afghan village set into the mountains. And I said, I'm going for it. I mm. ran up to him like I was a photo editor, mm. and I put the picture in front of him. I said, What do you think if we crop it here and bring the village a little forward? And at first he thought I was out of my mind. And he realized what I was doing. He looked at me, he goes, great idea. Do that. Crop it. Bring it up. Nice work. Blah, blah, blah. And he thanked me at the end of the day. He goes, thank you for making it real. Wow. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, over the years, you've told me some stories about, uh, you know, it's it's a whole interesting subculture of you know acting. And, and, you know, one of the things I mentioned earlier is that you know, just the ability to be able to jump for unexpected opportunities because they come up and you got to be ready and they're not, you know, you don't think about that. You, you know, you, somehow you think that, you know, a lot of acting is about, you know, a much more uh, procedural you know, process of getting these jobs. Whereas actually it, it seems like you're, you've got to just be ready uh, to jump when you are there. And then, and, and some of the things, the stories that you've you've told me too, I think are interesting about just your relationships with other actors and kind of the informals, you know, um, backstory stuff. Well, like uh, well, like my life. Sometimes you're on set and you have an opportunity to add a little something that's different. Right. And depending on who you're with, they either go with it or they reject it. Um, I have a great story about Jimmy Candelfini, who played Tony Soprano on The right, Sopranos. Right, yeah. I did the remake of the movie, The Taking of One, Two, Three, Pell. Oh, yeah. Taking right. of Pelham, excuse me. One, Two, Three. I played the police captain, and Jimmy played the mayor of New York. So we're in the MTA control room. Uh, it's four in the morning. We've had a 16 hour day. People are exhausted. And I'm sitting on what's called an apple box, which is a wooden crate on the side of the set. And he comes slowly walking past me. This is two years after the last episode of The Sopranos. And he comes, Jimmy Gandolfini comes walking past me. I'm exhausted. He's exhausted. I look up. I go, how you doing, Tony? 
<laughs> and as soon as I said Tony, I was like a character in a Sam Peckinpah movie where everything was in slow motion. I could feel the word Tony coming out of my mouth. Wow. He stops, puts his hand on his shoulder. He goes, my name's Jimmy. That guy's dead. And he keeps walking. <laughs> and at that moment, I said to myself, wow, there are three people on the planet that know the real ending to The Sopranos. Jimmy Gandolfini, the producer, David Chase, and me. Wow. Oh, jeez. Now, there have been uh, a number of in, informal opportunities that you know, you're talking about just in terms of your interactions with uh, other actors like Jeff Goldblum, you know, um, Brad Pitt and others, you know. Um, so I, I'd like to hear a little bit more of that. I, I think our listeners would as well. But but we're going to uh, head toward another break, the, the last one before our final segment. Um, so but I think the, the, these are some fun stories. Uh, I think they give a real sense of, you know, what it's like uh, to to be, you know, in in this environment, uh, in a, in a kind of you know uh, backstory kind of way. So I'd like to uh, I'd like to keep our listeners on edge here and uh, have them wait until we come back from our break. Uh, so, uh, folks, uh, you won't want to miss these stories. Uh, we'll be back in two minutes with Hudson Cooper. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Do you want to hear a show about football? How about football moms? What if we told you that was just a start? Tune in for Double Down with Garrett and Mac. Audrey Garrett and Jeracy Mack are moms to some well-known NFL players. Sure, they'll talk football and raising their kids to achieve greatness, but they'll also talk about community and world issues, motherhood, news, and lifestyle topics. Listen in every Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England. Along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week. And each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio. Live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. Uh, it's Ron Roel with 45 Forward, talking with actor and writer and longtime friend of mine, Hudson Cooper. Uh, before the break, we were talking about uh, some of the backstories of uh, his acting career, and some of them are kind of funny, interesting stories. Uh, one of which he's uh, uh, he's mentioned before, but uh, he's had a lot of interesting stories about Jeff Goldblum and, and uh, their relationship. I have some great stories about Jeff. Jeff replaced Chris North, who replaced Vincent D'Onofrio. The show ran for 10 seasons, and eventually Vincent came back for the final eight episodes. But when he first left, Chris North took over, and then Jeff took over. Mm -hmm. And my situation in this set with the squad room was, the desk next to me 
was for Chris North and then Jeff Goldblum. And Jeff was very interesting. When I went for my wardrobe fitting for the first episode of that season, I went into the wardrobe room and Ingrid Price was the the set designer mm-hmm. for the wardrobe. And all over were pictures of Steve McQueen from the movie Bullet. I said, what, what are these up here for? She said, Jeff wants to be dressed like McQueen in Bullet. You know, <laughs> corduroy sport jackets with, you know, vests and everything else. I said, okay. So Jeff shows up while I'm getting fitted and he says, who are you? I said, uh, I'm Hudson Cooper. I played Detective Jeffries. And Jeff with those big eyes says, Detective Jeffries, Jeff Goldblum, solving crimes. We'll be solving crimes together if I can find the right shoes. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, well, Ingrid has all the wardrobe. I can't find the shoes. I don't have the right shoes. I'm not comfortable in the shoes. I said, they'll find it. So now a week later, we're going to film the first scene that he's in. And he, I'm sitting at my desk, and he comes strolling over. He goes, Hudson Cooper, ready to solve some crimes? I said, yep. He goes, me too. I said, okay. He goes, you know why? I said, why? And he puts his feet up on my desk. I found the shoes. I'm ready for the shoes. Well, we filmed the whole episode and then spending millions to film an episode. They showed it to Dick Wolf and Dick Wolf said, what the heck is he wearing? (laughs) Why is he wearing corduroy jackets in the year 2000? He's out of his mind. Believe it or not, they put him in a whole new wardrobe. They ate the two, three million dollars it took to film the initial episode. We did the whole thing over again with his new wardrobe that was more contemporary. But he was amazing. He had a did he photograph. Keep the shoes? Did he keep the shoes? I, I never asked him about the shoes. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he still wears them. Wow. But it was pretty amazing because um, he was a unique guy with a photographic photographic memory. But he's also very distractive to the rest of the actors because they would set the scene up. They go rolling, which means the sound is rolling and they're ready to call action. And he leaned over to me the first t- day and said, give me a Sinatra song. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, give me a Sinatra song. I said, Summerwind. <laughs> Summerwind came rolling. He starts singing. They call action. He goes right into his dialogue. Wow. That without any hesitation. And that, about a week later, <laughs> he says, I want you to read the, this script with me. I said, okay. So I turned to the scene we're going about ready to do. And I start reading the scene. He goes, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm reading the scene we're going to do next. He goes, no, no, no. The whole script. I said, what do you mean the whole script? He goes, I memorized the whole script. I know every part. We started from page one. I said, you're not even in this. He goes, let's just do it. We, he did the whole script. He was completely off book, and I was reading from the script. He was an amazing guy. Wow, wow. And you get that sense when you see him. Even now in commercials, you get the sense of when you, when you, that he's got that sort of mind, you know, that sort of precision and that, that memory. That's brilliant. Just yeah. absolutely brilliant and, and fun to be around. Very affable, very outgoing to everybody. Just a great guy. Yeah. What about some of the other uh, uh, colleagues? I have, a, I have a great Sharon Stone story. Oh, okay. Sidney Lumet did a remake of the movie uh, Gloria starring Sharon Stone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I played Sharon Stone's cab driver. And if you remember anything about the movie, there's a young boy that she's with that she's, she's escorting around the city. And they were always in the back of my cab. I was the cab driver. Mm-hmm. Well, the first day, the kid was very quiet. He wouldn't respond to anybody. And she was Sharon Stone. So uh, it comes a time when I'm driving them up Broadway 
in 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 the 150 area. And Sidney Lumet gets on the on the director Sidney Lumet, who's a very famous guy, mm-hmm. gets on the walkie-talkie and says, "Bring the cab driver to me." I figured I did something wrong, so I drive the cab over. He comes over to the win the driver's window and goes, "I have a problem." I said, "What's that?" He goes, "I don't know where you are. You're driving in live traffic." I don't know when to cue the action. Can you help me out? I said, what do you want me to do? He said, get him a, get him a walkie-talkie. Give me a walkie-talkie. He said, when you pass 140th Street, you say, action, and everybody's going to start to, to move. So I drove back to 118th Street, driving in live traffic, and as I'm driving, I see background people waiting to move. I see principal actors waiting to move. I see picture cars that are hired by production to cross in front of me. I pass the street where he wanted me to do, and I pick up the walkie. I go, and action. And people started moving around. So I got to direct the Sidney Lumet movie. Well, towards <laughs> the end, the last scene, I've been with Sharon and his kid maybe 10 days during the filming of the movie. And I turned, we were waiting for the lighting to be finished. I turned to the back seat and I said to the little boy, How you doing? And he looked at me like he was a superstar, and he didn't answer me. So, so Sharon goes, tell him how you're doing. So the kid goes, I'm doing fine. Nice to see you again. I turn around to her and I go, and you? She goes, oh, yeah. How are you? I'm Sharon. I said, I know who you are. Nice to see you again. Oh, it's a great story. Great story. So, so it takes all types in the business. Yeah, yeah. Now, now So now you um, – you're still available, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, for, for other parts to come up. But you're also doing uh, – you've returned to writing as well. Yeah, right? about a year ago, um, I, I, got, I moved up to Su- Sullivan County to spend time with my mom. And there's a big uh, – not a big, a small newspaper called the Sullivan County Democrat that's been in, published continuously since the 1880s uh, and, la- and for the past 40 or 50 years owned by the same family. And I read it because it's a lot of news, local news. Uh, and I wrote four spec humor think piece columns, uh, hoping to get a job as a columnist. And I submitted it to them, and I didn't hear anything. And then the former columnist on a Friday edition wrote, as he advertised, this is my last column. I'm giving up the business. And I called the publisher of the Democrat, and he said, oh, we were just going to call you. Can you come in? I said, yeah. So I drove to Calicoon, New York a little town upstate New York where the actor Mark Ruffalo happens to live. Hmm. And it was during the pandemic last June. And we couldn't, I couldn't go in the office. So we got, we're on the porch. He said, we love your columns. They're a little like Dave Barry, but mm-hmm. they're also more hysterical and uh, historical as well. And hmm. get people laughing. He goes, we wanted to make you our new columnist. I said, okay. Wow. So I figured I'd, once a month I'd be a columnist. He said, nope, once a week. This is for the first month. We need one a week. So I've been doing it every week. I get published on the first, uh, I'm sorry, first section of the newspaper every week. I've been doing it since July 31st of last year. Wow. And it's wow. called Random Thoughts. And what's great, I have the liberty to write about anything I want. Uh, this week I'm writing about postcards. Last week I wrote about Jello. Huh. Any topic I want, I infuse comedy with actual historical references and people tend really like it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So my next step with that is a guy approached me about creating a website where I could have my columns uh, posted on the site and maybe increase readership, which I'd like to do because 
uh, I like entertaining people in, in a large way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, again, your, your sense of readiness, <laughs> you know, but you're, you're, you're always in a, in a state of pre preparation, really. I think that that's one of the things that impressed me is that preparation, but, but willingness to basically improvise. You know, improvise, back... uh, improvise and seize an opportunity when it arises. Yeah. Yeah. So you're in an interesting way, you're kind of back on stage, you know, you know, yeah. looking for that comic moment, right? I mean, well, I may, I may combine a little bit of everything because the local library has speakers and they want me to do a, a speaking engagement, a little bit about acting, a little bit about how I come up with my columns. Mm -hmm. So in that way, I'm going to put everything together. And I think that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. How do you come up with your columns? I just keep my ears open. I literally came up with everything from, uh, envelopes to jello to uh vegan food i just get ideas and i i had a list when i started of 40 ideas every i used to put it in the notes section of my iphone when i had an idea uh and they i did one about apples and they're funny like the apple one i list at one point in the middle of a paragraph there are so many different apples including blah 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 and in the middle of the list i i use the word spin it S-P-I-N-E-T. Mm -hmm. And then two, two sentences later, I go, those are all apples that you can find in the United States except for spinet. I put that in to keep you on your toes, huh. which spinet is a form of a piano. <laughs> so I like, to, I like to break the wall sometimes and address my readers directly. Right, right. And I think they appreciate that because it kind of draws them in like they're part of the joke. Yeah. Yeah, I think they do like participating that way. And, you know, respect for the reader. You're, you're not, they're just not, you know, uh, passive observers. They're part of the process. Another one I wrote that was very popular was about February. Mm -hmm. I said, why do we have the first R in February? No one pronounces it. It's time we got rid of it and make it February. And I looked up and, of course, there are articles about the fact that most Americans don't say February. We say February. I said, let's get rid of it. And it's a very funny column. Hmm. But I, you probably couldn't get your editor to change the uh, the date on the issue, though. <laughs> no, no, that would have been great. That would that that would have been a great idea, you know. But no, he wouldn't do that. I mean, he, he understands my sense of humor. You know, the that column ended with the. I'm paraphrasing. Of course, library should be library should not be library because library just sounds wrong. <laughs> It absolutely does. It does. Um, now, one thing that I know that we were talking about a few years ago, but again, it, it sort of shows for me your, your sense of, uh, you know, you're always working and always preparing. And so, um, although it hasn't uh, launched yet, I, I know that you're working on, you know, a, a TV pilot called Mac, which is sort of combines a lot of your experiences with writing, but also your TV. Tell us a little bit about that. It's sort of yeah, a project in waiting. It's a, a project that uh, my my partner and I came up. Actually, we were working on the movie Nonstop with Liam Neeson. We worked for 30 straight days in the plane where all the action takes place. Mm -hmm. And one morning, Akira came up to me and said, I had a dream about you. I said, what, what was the dream? That I wrote a pilot for a show that starred you. And he told me what the show was about. And I said, well, if you want to collaborate, I think I could have some suggestions. And we essentially changed the premise and we made it uh, not to divulge it too much because it's still okay. in, the, in, in the phase where we want to sell it. It's a cop show that's suitable for the family with a sense of humor. It takes place in New York City 
And suffice it to say, it's very different. It's something that's never been done before. Wow. So we're shopping that around now. Very good. That's That sounds great. Wow. I'm serious. There are lots more stories to talk about in your story, Life Hudson, but we'll have to leave it there for today and invite you back for another show. Um, so I want to thank you for for a terrific show. And I want to tell you, the, the folks out there, once again, um, tell your friends if they've missed my conversation with Hudson today, they can still listen to it as a podcast on voiceamerica.com. Just search for my show, 45 Forward. Uh, you can also find it on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or go to my website, rowellresources.com, and just click on the 45 Forward tab. Uh, if people have questions or comments from Hudson, what's the best way for people to reach you? Do you have a, an email contact? Uh, I do, but I don't want to be inundated with okay. emails. <laughs> okay. They can contact you, and you could contact me because we're always in touch. We are. We are. So and I'd be happy to answer any questions they might have. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it it has been a lot of fun, and you know, I was thinking back, um, you know, when we were talking about your your uh, time in high school, you know, that you were the science guy, you know, you were <laughs> going to be, uh, you know, a biology major, and you were, of course, um, and of course, you know, you ended up not being that kind of science guy, and yet, in an, an interesting way, you you are. You're, I think of you as the guy who's endlessly experimenting and and teaching us. You know all how to navigate a profoundly vital life. So I thank you for that. Um, and so, folks, uh, be sure to join me next week, uh, Monday at 12 noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern time, when I'll be talking with Julie Wexler, who has spent her 25-plus year career in a variety of elder care settings. And she'll be talking about the continuing of options for seniors or parents as they age how families can make choices to ensure that their loved ones continue to live full, active, and purposeful lives. So until then, keep moving forward, 45 Forward. Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Rowell, for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a great week.